go. Ready when you are. Ready? <sighs> the Sapiens. You all, thank you, sir. Quote, 70,000 years ago, Homo sapiens was still an insignificant ape-like animal minding its own business in a corner of Africa. In the following millennia, it transformed itself into the master of the entire planet and the terror of the ecosystem. End quote. Back then, there were at least four human species hunting, gathering, raising families. Neanderthals, Denisovans, Homo floresiensis, something like that. And since and- then... We've exterminated all of them. They're all gone. Which sucks. And we've built roads, dams, skyscrapers, internet, spaceships. Uh, we fought worldwide wars, detonated nuclear bombs, landed on the moon, and enslaved every other animal on Earth. We used to live in trees and jungles, but now we live in nation states. We have schools, religions, technology, economies, podcasts about sweet books. <laughs> so isn't it weird yes. that one previously insignificant ape now totally dominates planet Earth? That's weird. That's pretty weird. And yes. that's what Yuval uh, goes into here. That's it's not an exaggeration here because our buildings and our farms... And our land that we use covers half of all the land on Earth. Okay? How the fuck did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> How did humans come to run the world? That's the question Yuval Noah Harari answers in his books, Sapiens. This is basically a creation story of humanity. By reading Sapiens, you'll get a better sense of the history of Homo sapiens and the crazy world we've built. You will better understand yourself, society, religions, politics, and even your own family. But to be honest, if you're going to write this book, you've got to be a little bit of a weirdo, and Yuval definitely fits the bill. Weirdo in a good way. In a good way. Meditates for two hours a day. Yes. And because that's not enough, month-long silent meditation retreat every year. (laughs) He really does a good job of focusing on the biggest picture. Like, he's the biggest picture thinker you can imagine. Only somebody who doesn't talk for months at a time can think at this level. It's He's connecting topics in a more understandable and mind-blowing way than almost any other author, any book we've ever read. That's why you've probably heard of this book. That's why we're opening our podcast with this book. And uh, it's one of the best books we've ever read. We wrote down here in the outline, Yuval's YouTube game is fire. And JD commented, like, invented fire. Levels of fire. Okay. (laughs) We're going to get to inventing fire in a minute. But yeah. Um, Yeah. Anyways, so JD and I ourselves spent a long time reading, understanding, distilling, and arguing, only like brothers can argue, by the way, about this book so that we could give you a tight, interesting summary of Yuval's perspective on world history. Tight. So every sentence, it's tight because Yuval, every sentence in his book taught us something about what it is to be human in this new world that humans have created. So that's why we spent all this time digging in and trying to tighten up our outline. Because after you've understood Yuval's perspective, your eyes are going to open just a little bit more for the rest of your life. You see our world through different eyes clearer lens what happened in our world that allowed an insignificant species of ape growing up in the in a little corner of africa called homo sapiens how did we come to take control of planet earth and to delve into this he he focuses on four revolutions that have occurred throughout homo space homo sapiens that could be our name (laughs) homo sapiens history first The Cognitive Revolution 70,000 years ago, when our brains exploded in size and complexity. 
the agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago when we increased our calories per unit of land. We're going to dig into that. Scientific revolution 500 years ago when we invented all our new superpowers. Technological superpowers, yeah. And the industrial revolution in the last 200 years where we didn't need to use muscle power to get shit done anymore. But we're going to back it up a little bit further to get started. Um, Six million years ago is when our human story started really getting interesting. In the jungle, in Africa six million years ago, there was an actual ape mother who had two daughters. These daughters were living and breathing apes, apes. okay? <laughs> one, one became the ancestor, one of these daughters became the ancestor to all chimpanzees and bonobos, and the other daughter is the common ancestor for every homo, spe- homo species individual who ever exists. Six million years ago, we were sibs, okay? <laughs> with, yeah. with, with chimps and bonobos. That's not that long, pretty crazy. So what did our ancestors do differently than the, their sister ape? This book is the story of our ape mother's descendants. Sapiens, a brief history of humankind by Yuval Noah Harari. Thank you, Yuval. Thank you, Yuval. Let's dig in. How did we go from apes living in the savanna to masters of the world? Part one, cognitive revolution. Chapter one, an animal of no significance. So what happened to those two ape daughters? Bet you can guess what the chimp grandma did. Invent fire? Nope. Stayed in the jungle. Okay. Kept chimping. Okay. But over the last few, few million years, the jungle's been receding. The African climate was drying up and the plains were expanding. So our Homo sapiens ape grandmother stood up to see a little further and walked out onto those plains. Metaphorically speaking, quote, on a hike in East Africa two million years ago, you might well have encountered a familiar cast of characters, anxious mothers cuddling their babies and clutches of carefree children playing in the mud, temperamental youths chafing against the dictates of society and weary elders who just wanted to be left in peace, chest-thumping machos trying to impress the local beauty, and wise old matriarchs who had already seen it all. These archaic humans loved, played, formed close friendships, and competed for status and power. But so did chimpanzees, baboons, and elephants. There was nothing special about humans, end quote. What made us us? Here's two big ones that have been acting on, two big forces that have been acting on Homo sapiens for the last six million years. The first one here, our species of ape started walking on two feet. Better to scan the savanna and look for danger. Also, we can start hunting more efficiently by running down large animals. Wedding, running long distances. We couldn't catch an antelope in a sprint, but we could catch them after a marathon when the antelope just couldn't run anymore. So I'm sure you've heard this one before, but you probably haven't heard that some people even think we used to just jog around looking for carcasses and cracking open big bones with big rocks, e- eating the marrow, okay? <laughs> so that was world. our lifestyle, okay? <laughs> what do you do? I run around looking for carcasses. <laughs> well, Lovely there's, lifestyle. There's, there's lots out there. But either way, we are definitely the best marathon runners in the animal kingdom. Very unique, right? What did that do to our bodies, Andrew? Well, once you start walking on two feet, hips get a little bit narrower, better to run with. But something was also happening at the same time. When our hips got narrower, our brains were getting bigger. Doubling. 
doubling in volume. We're talking taking one brain and add another brain of size in just a few million years. That is like Mach 2 in evolutionary speed, so right? So what happens when your brain and your hips get narrower and your brains get bigger? Your baby's got to be born sooner, okay? <laughs> Human babies suck. They really okay. suck. Yeah, yeah they're potatoes. When for like giraffe babies yeah. are born, they drop like six feet to the Sorry, ground man. and outrun yeah. lions. Okay, we yeah. can't even stand up for a year. The because this human baby pathetic quotient, mamas need more social networking to help in keeping the babies alive. Okay? They have to spend so much on their baby that they need help with other humans to make sure everyone can survive. Meaning we are more moldable from birth. We're born prematurely for our size and especially for our brains. Our brains haven't even started connecting and hardwiring and stuff. So we still have a lot more learning to do when we come out of the womb. More malleable out of the womb. Yeah. So we have bigger brains, narrower hips, and we're more moldable and socially complex from birth. Right? That doesn't explain why we beat all the other animal species on Earth, but we've outlined the tools that Homo sapiens used to get the job done. That giant social brain was the key to unlocking an amazing survival hack. Quote, Homo sapiens conquered the world thanks above all to its unique language. Homo sapiens conquered the world thanks above all to its unique language. End quote. But we're not the only animals that can talk. Monkeys can yell, snake, get out of the tree. They can yell, eagle, get in the tree. Isn't that crazy? They have two different words. They, they can tell you where to go because where's the things most likely going to eat you, okay? Yeah. Bees even dance to each other about the locations of flowers. Think about that. That's Their brains crazy. are smaller than my pinky toenails, and they can dance to each other about locations of flowers, okay? So a lot of other animals can talk, but things we can do that no other animal can is connect ideas and talk about things that aren't even right in front of us. We invented complex and abstract language. How, Andrew, did we invent complex language? Well, Jay, there's some competing theories. Okay, so first, in a joint lecture with Yuval on YouTube, historian Jared Diamond refers to the anatomical change do. in vocal cords. Chimps can't speak because they don't have vocal control that we have. But Yuval, in that lecture, comes back and says, yeah, vocal anatomy is important, but, quote, a parrot can say everything the Pope can, but it doesn't mean the parrot is smart. Love that he used the, the nice, Pope. Yuval. Yeah, <laughs> Could have picked one. anyone. Yeah. So that's kind of the first theory here is maybe evolution favored ancient humans who could communicate information about the world to each other. Organizing a mammoth cliff hunt by saying, all right, you guys are going to go over there, you guys are going to run, and we're going to run that cliff, that mammoth off the cliff. Think about that. That's yeah. actually what we used to do, is you kind of have to plan people this location, that location, this specific time, and you know, under these contingencies, we're going to act this plan out, and we could get thousands of pounds of meat after Very exciting. Yeah. yeah. So they found big mammoth graveyards under, under cliffs. That's pretty cool to think about. So that was one one way, or the other way is, hey, I, watch out, I saw a poisonous snake by that bend in the river, okay? That is important information for our ancestors to be transmitting to each Abstract other. Abstract information. We can organize our hunting, our defense, because we could communicate the whereabouts of big tubers, those all-important tubers, or water holes, or other things, okay? We're transmitting information about the world to our family, our kids, and that helps survive. But that may not cover it. And the second theory is what Yuval talks about in his book, Sapiens. So, okay, maybe the more interesting theory for why we invented language is so that we could talk about each other. About each other. Yeah. 
What's that? Is there a word for that? There is. It's called gossip, right? Gossip. Uh, that's what he basically he says that gossip is the reason that homo sapiens take over the world. But we're going to elaborate a little more. Quote, Jay. It is not enough for individual men and women to know the whereabouts of lion and bison. It's much more important for them to know who in their band hates whom, who is sleeping with whom, and who is honest, and who is a cheat. End quote. Gossip allows us to develop relationships with more people. It increases the cohesiveness of our group. If you can talk about people with other people, don't you feel close to each other? Okay, it can be argued. Everyone gossips. Let's get real. That okay. evolution by natural selection wanted us to be able to talk about who got boobs over the summer. Okay, <laughs> that's a possibility. It's a, it's, it can be argued. Okay. Okay. Gossip gives us the ability to talk about things that don't even exist for the first time, probably in animal history. We could imagine things, communicate them, and have other people imagine and communicate them too. That's our secret song abstract non-real-time stories about stuff that doesn't even exist right here yes humans took over planet earth because of this key teamwork tool language and language evolved first as a way to maintain social cohesion gossiping about each other kept us together so we've been evolving in small tribes for mm, a few million years give or take we developed the ability to gossip which we're actually discovering we think neanderthals had to they have the same brain protein that we we need to uh, develop our language parts okay. of our brain they have similar vocal anatomy that's just pretty interesting to think about they were probably like hey, have you seen these crazy new african homo sapiens they're <laughs> killing all of us wow okay gossiping kept our group cohesion tight and you probably couldn't work with different tribes because you would you couldn't communicate they believe different things or even you didn't speak know a different them. language yeah, yeah you didn't know them it was very scary but uh, tribal cooperation behavior changed, changed. around 70,000 years ago in the fossil records archaeologists start finding something interesting before 70,000 years ago, most Homo sapiens skeletons are contained in East Africa only. You don't see Homo sapiens skeletons anywhere else. But after 70,000 years ago, closer, more recent, you archaeological digs find Homo sapiens bones and tools appearing all over the world. What happened at that 70,000 70, years ago? Yeah. We went on a species-conquering winning streak that we have never come back from and we're actually That's having right. to tone it down now yeah, we, okay? yeah for sure that is the cognitive revolutions and the neanderthals and denisovans and the hobbits in indonesia couldn't keep up they could probably talk but they couldn't get big enough groups together like we could that's one of the main ideas in this book so we homo sapiens evolved our language hack to cooperate with people that we didn't know and that's probably what our other homo groups couldn't do yep remember how we said that our language allowed us to talk about abstract complex concepts well that was the killer feature that feature allowed us to increase our tribe sizes far beyond our ancestor sizes or our fellow homo species group sizes right yeah. our gossip grew into a more advanced language feature shared imagination and that's really what yuval is saying was the cognitive revolution is when we could share imagination with each other not just imagine new things that was probably a new feature too but when you could transmit it to other people and get people to think things like wow tool is a pretty cool band <laughs> things that don't <laughs> exist right here right now okay yep. quote the ability to share imagination through language is the killer app that made homo sapiens language better than all the rest 
legends, myths, gods, and religions appeared for the first time with the cognitive revolution. Our ability to transmit information about our imagination is what creates culture. Culture. That's the thing, and we're going to talk about in Selfish Gene. That is one of our species' most unique contributions to the world. Practical example from back in the good old days a million years ago. If you know someone intimately, let's kind of bring this back down to earth, right? If you know someone intimately in your tribe that you grew up with your whole life, you know that they don't want to kill you. But if you don't (laughs) know someone, you have to basically believe that anyone that you don't know wants to kill you. With that type of reality, you should be ready to kill everyone you don't know all the time. That's not going to be very good for evolution, right? But with a society who has shared imagination, they all believe in the same stories. Now, if you see someone else, even though you don't know them, that you could, you might be able to tell they believe the same things you do. Things like don't kill strangers, or don't idea. cheat, right? The line God, trust between people who don't know each other is now finally enabled. So here's another good example highlighting the importance of and the uniqueness of our shared imagination. Quote, you could never convince a monkey to give you a banana by promising him limitless bananas after death in monkey heaven, okay? (laughs) Wow, what an idea, Yuval. But if you promise me a few virgins, eternal life after death, and let's be honest, a bunch of golds in the real world, yeah, I'll go on a crusade to the Middle East and kill a bunch of people for you, okay? (laughs) That was our ancestors a few thousand years ago. Mm, By ourselves, we're very similar to chimps. But what you know what chimps can't do? They don't schedule lunch next Tuesday. They can't fly in a plane or attend a lecture. Can you imagine a lecture hall full of chimps, Jay? They kill each other. They can't mass cooperate. So here's a quote from a chimp science guy. That we actually used in our Righteous Mind podcast, too, but it's just too good. It is inconceivable that you would ever see two chimpanzees carrying a log together. They can't cooperate with each other. Shared stories allowed tribal strangers to establish trust by appealing to a common god, mythical ancestors, or totem animal. And these shared stories got our separate, smaller tribes working together into larger groups. So we're going to talk about the group sizes later, okay? But a number that we have is 150. So that's called Dunbar's number. It was a scientist that we will get to in a little bit. Quote, beyond 150 people, any large-scale human cooperation, whether a modern state, a medieval church, or ancient city or archaic tribe, is rooted in common myths that exist only in people's collective imagination. So now, the main idea of that book is that these things only exist in our weirdo brains that just grew. Yes. Because of our collective imagination, you could get thousands of people at a rally chanting, make Babylon great again, (laughs) right? They don't even know each other, but they're all cooperating together. That's our secret sauce. That's our magic. A few thousand years ago, our groups got so big and brought a new layer of complexity into the mix. Um, This comes from Robert Sapolsky, Big Societies, Big Gods. Quote, it is only when societies grow large enough that big gods emerge. Big gods meaning deities who are concerned with human morality and punish our transgressions. Once our shared imaginations allowed us to break this 150-person barrier, world domination was imminent. A pride of lions or even 50 Neanderthals were no match for 500 sapiens who all believe they're fighting for the same cause. And our boy E.O. Wilson calls this the social conquest of Earth. It doesn't exist if it's not social, okay? So what's the simplest answer to our original question? Why did Homo sapiens take over the world? Jay? Quote, shared imagination is the glue that has made us the masters of creation. 
And this is such a unique spin that you've all takes that we're going to dive even a little bit deeper. Here's some examples of shared imagination. So a long time ago, we're the lion tribe. We believe in the lion spirit. The lion God gives us this land to live on. All tribes who believe in the guardian lion spirit are on the same team and believe the same things. Another piece of shared imagination, the Detroit Lions. Okay, They shared imagination leads to caring about the people you don't even know throwing a weird ball in a striped grassy field. Such a deep point, he marinates even further. This is a really, really interesting little story here. So we're going to get into it. General Motors. This is all under the rubric of shared Shared imagination. imagination. We're going to pull back into a historical timeline in a minute, but we want to bring that shared imagination idea home. Yes. General Motors Corporation, where our mother works today. In what sense can we say that General Motors actually exists? There's lots of vehicles, but the vehicles aren't General Motors. It has factories, machinery, showrooms, but that's not the company. Uh, General Motors employs mechanics, accountants, secretaries, engineers, but that's not the company, those employees. Even if a freak disaster wiped out all employees, showrooms, inventory, etc., General Motors would still live on. They could continue to borrow money, buy new machinery, and keep making cars. GM isn't necessarily invulnerable or immortal. If a judge were to mandate the dissolution, its factories would remain standing and its employees and shareholders would continue to live, but GM itself would immediately vanish. In short, GM has no essential connection to the physical world. Here's the big idea. GM is a figment of our collective imagination. Not just GM. All corporations. All corporations. All governments, churches, stories, rules, laws... Lawyers call this legal fiction, okay? It's really a fiction, but if you dress it up in enough words and, and enough brains agree with it, it turns kind of real. But it's not a physical object. It doesn't exist except on paper. and, it's a and legal with entity. The, yeah, with, the, with the, the little scribbly lines we put on papers, okay? It can open bank accounts. It can buy property taxes. and It can buy property and pay taxes. GM is a particular type of legal fiction called a limited liability company. In the U.S., we call this a corporation, right? How was GM created then exactly? This is only comes from a guy that meditates years. Two hours a day. Okay? Yeah. yeah, quote. In much the same way that priests and sorcerers have created gods and demons through history, telling stories and convincing people to believe them. And here's one about Catholicism. Quote, if a Catholic priest dressed in sacred garments said the right words at the right moment, hocus corpus meum, Latin for this is my body, then hocus pocus, <laughs> the bread turned into Christ's flesh. In the case of GM, quote, if a certified lawyer followed all the proper liturgy and rituals, wrote all the required spells and oaths on a wonderfully decorated piece of paper, and affixed his ornate signature to the bottom, then hocus pocus, a new company was incorporated. These are some crazy ideas here, yes. but it makes sense when you pull back far enough that everything Corporations, government, churches, rules, laws are figments of our collective imagination. And here comes the laser. Mind-blowing quote here. Quote, there are no gods in the universe, no nations, no money, no human rights, no laws, and no justice outside the common imagination of human beings. That's pretty crazy to think about. Dinosaurs ichthyosaurs even before the dinosaurs none of these things create gods nations money human rights laws only when our species grows these big enough brains that we could communicate shared imagination stuff to together can these ideas be created 
So what are we talking about, Jay, for a second here? Did we just say that nothing exists outside of our imagination? We did. Uh, now here's a response from the OG Albus Dumbledore after Harry died and asked him that very question. Quote, just because it's in your head, Harry, why does that mean that it is not real? End well, quote. Yeah, this stuff is in our heads, in our culture, and it permeates every part of our existence today. Yes. Okay. We're going to slow down for a second. We just decided nothing was real. I thought this was a book on the human history, right? Um, I thought we were talking about humans spreading across the planet. What, what did we just get into, Jay? What we were talking about was that the reason we spread across the planet was our collective human imagination. How did Homo sapiens go from being Homo tenders for saber-toothed tigers to dominating every ecosystem on Earth? And that shared imagination was necessary. Six million years ago... Our early ape ancestors stood up, walked out of the jungle, and onto the plains. That gave us narrower hips, and our bigger group sizes gave us bigger brains, meaning our babies had to be born sooner, meaning that we needed to cultivate deeper social networks to help us raise these kids, and the bigger brains to handle all the social maneuvering, the gossiping, the relationships, the reciprocity. That gossipy language enabled our better teamwork because we could talk about things not in this moment, share information about things far away, and cooperate with our shared imagination. The stories we told ourselves gave us bigger teams, and those big teams took over every ecosystem on Earth. And now... We're going to enter the historical timeline, okay? Time for battle. (laughs) Up until 70,000 years ago, our cousins, the Neanderthals, We're living on the Sinai Peninsula. You know that little spot in Africa that's kind of the only land route out of Africa. And you see our bones and tools right up to the edge, but not any further. Neanderthals were bigger, stronger, and probably as intelligent as we were. If not more. They had slightly bigger brains. We know that they spoke. We know that they painted their faces. We know that they cared for their elderly, okay? We know that because we have actually found skeletons with tons of arthritis and, like, broken legs that kind of healed up. There is no way that person could have survived without the help of their tribe. So we know they cared about each other. They created art. They talked. But starting 70,000 years ago, that's the magic number here, after the cognitive revolution, when the Homo sapiens separate tribes started working together, not only did we beat the Neanderthals on the Sinai Peninsula and in the Middle East, we just kept on beating every tribe that we came across, okay? We drove the Neanderthals, the Denisovans, and the other weird Homo species into extinction, Okay, 50 Neanderthals. Not a good thing, but uh, it's it's, what happened. It's what happened. (laughs) It's what happened. 50 Neanderthals were no match for 500 sapiens fighting together. We had long distance trade networks, Neanderthals didn't. If a Homo sapien invented a sweet new bow, that invention would spread a lot faster. We're going to talk about that more. That's kind of cultural evolution in uh, Joseph Heinrich's book, but that that was a major point to come home. Is if you like, if you invented a new hand axe or new way to make sharp rocks, that way could spread across the entire species. Where if maybe Neanderthals didn't quite have those long distance trade networks, so the good ideas couldn't spread. Bottom line, we killed everyone else. Before we got busy with them, sometimes our ancestors, to quote the Flight of the Concords, quote, put down their weapons and picked up a woman. <laughs> what? Or possibly yeah. used our weapons and picked up a woman Genghis Khan style, right? So either way, 
all non-Africans have a little Neanderthal DNA, okay? We had sex with Neanderthals, and though those people that were born continued in the gene pool until today. I mean, 2 or 3%, that's pretty nuts. That means they were actually really genetically close to us, which is, that's what, that's what the tragedy we're comes interbreeding from. Interbreeding multiple homo species. Yeah, okay. Asians have Denisovan DNA. That's kind of a, a, a very similar to Neanderthals. We just discovered them like not even 10 years ago. Okay, but these are facts. Somewhere back then, we have an ancestor from a different evolutionary line, which is pretty crazy and provides an interesting point that our heritage is not like a tree. You know, you hear the evolutionary tree where things kind of grow off and, and, and branch off in different directions. Actually, what we're learning is that it's more apt to talk about it like almost like a bush okay, or a vine separates, comes back together. We aren't entirely different species than the Neanderthals. Okay, and Think of how different it would be today. If we had other homo species on our planet still, that would be so different. Um, only Yuval's mind is interesting enough to actually go here, but he even asks, would the book of Genesis say Neanderthals came from Adam and Eve? Whoa. Yeah. Think about it. Would the Declaration of Independence declare that humans of any species, homo, or excuse me, say homo species are all created equal? I don't know. We've gotten used to being the only ones around, but that all that wasn't always the case. So... 70,000 years ago, everything in the world changed. And one previously insignificant species of ape went on a 70,000-year domination spree, becoming the most successful and deadliest species in the annals of biology. Since then, we've been totally undefeated in the conquering of everything, everywhere. How long would it take us to spread to cover the whole world? Uh, some interesting math here. It only took us 2,000 years to go from the tip of Alaska to Tierra del Fuego. Think about that. That's like six, 7,000 miles, 2,000 years. That's it. Seven to eight miles a year. But that's only seven to eight miles a year. And yeah. no other animal in history has even come close. Think about how many ecosystems you have mm -hmm. to master. You start way up in the Arctic ton tundra you come down through the mountains a lot of plains a lot of forests boom you hit some desert then you get some more jungle swamps and that's just through north america <laughs> that's halfway there <laughs> you have to learn a lot about your environment and be able to spread that information very quickly which is what our language ability allowed us to do and a little highlights if this was sports center They'd be showing highlights of our Homo sapiens extinction list. Okay, listen to this. There used to be giant saber-toothed cats. We killed them all. There was 15,000-pound, 22-foot-tall giant ground sloths. There was 20-foot-tall bears that guarded the Bering Strait and probably slowed our migration to North America. Major slowing up. And that was a slow... And that was... I think they're called short-nosed bears, maybe. In the 15,000 years since our ancestors crossed the Bering Strait, the Americas lost over 75% of their large animal species. 75% of large animals in 15 years. 15,000 years. 15... Yeah. Australia lost 95% of their large animals. Okay? Quote, among the world's large creatures, the only survivors of the human flood will be the humans themselves and the farmyard animals that serve as galley slaves on Noah's Ark. End quote. Another great quote by Yuval. So whenever you think you're out in untouched nature, know that your ancestors shredded that ecosystem long ago, and, or otherwise you'd be seeing a lot more animals, okay? So but how do we kill all these animals? Well, 
during this time, we invented a lot of new things. Boats, oil lamps, bows and arrows. With bigger tribes, better inventions spread more quickly and someone could specialize in being an arrow maker. And once shared stories allowed us to order up into groups bigger than those small tribes you mentioned, we up and went on that nonstop conquering spree. So to understand our evolutionary journey, we're going to get into the minds of our early homo ancestors for a minute, okay? Little caveman. Chapter three, a day in the life of Adam and Eve. Let's take a look at what we can say about how our ancestors lived starting about 70,000 years ago. We can start off by saying that both them and us were shaped by tens of millions of years of natural selection. So that is thousands and thousands of generations of ape parents raising ape children who were molded to live in a certain social structure. So <laughs> blank slate, my ass, okay? <laughs> uh-uh. We have a human nature, and it affects how we eat, how we have sex, how we make friends, and how we work for promotions today. And that was E.O. Wilson's big idea in the in the 70s that we mentioned in the Righteous Mind podcast. And we wrote in here, so JD and I were recording this in this huge metal construction known as a skyscraper. We're 400 feet up in the air looking over Chicago, but our DNA still thinks we're on that savannah. That's a major point of this book. It doesn't matter where the hell you live, what kind of society, your DNA is still used to being on the savannah. Why do you think we're all so fat? <laughs> okay, this is how cavemen ate. If you... Find a tree full of figs, and you're a caveman. You are going to chow down every single fig you possibly can past the point of where you're almost going to puke, okay? Because the baboons are coming to get it, too. Exactly. Now, that same urge affects us when we open the kitchen cabinets and grab a sleeve of fig newtons. (laughs) Same figs, same (laughs) same eating style, okay? All right, let's get into a little a little more behavior. For starters, about what it was like to be a homo sapiens is that we aren't at the top of the food chain, okay? We weren't. We we're, should not be. Yeah, we're 120 pounds, a weak-ass, toothless, clawless little bitch, okay? <laughs> Until 70,000 years ago, we were eaten by big cats. We could be eaten by larger apes. There are snakes, bears. All these things could kill us and eat us, okay? Why do you think we're scared all the time? And grizzlies, they're chill AF. Yeah. Right? You, yeah. Grizzlies don't get scared of things as easily because gorillas. nothing can eat them. Yeah. Okay. Quote, having recently been on the underdogs of the savannah, we are full of fears and anxieties over our position, which makes us doubly cruel and dangerous. End Whoa. quote. It changes our whole psychology. We're scared all the time. We're nervous about things that we don't need to now that we're at the top of the food chain. Grizzlies ain't nervous. Let's look at how we have sex. The general consensus from scientists is that we're monogamish. Mostly pair-bonded, but lots of screwing on the side. So that's actually rare among our ape cousins. Chimps and bonobos fuck around, and then the mom raises the kid without the dad apes they're the they are gorillas there's just one alpha gorilla and he's just got a harem of other girls but natural selection wanted us to experiment with lots of different ways of of raising kids and we've mostly settled on kind of a pair bonding thing but even today we have different human tribes that do really different things (laughs) we're gonna get into it early early homonyms they had love as well uh, but options were severely limited There's only a couple of girls in your tribe you can marry, so choose carefully. Approach even more carefully. 
even as recent as the 1200s. Okay, Genghis Khan got his wife, and most of the people in his area got his, they got their wife by bowing down the wife's family, stealing their horses, and stealing the girl along with. Okay. It's a little bit easier, Jay. Fortunately, we can just go to happy hour and talk to girls instead. Okay, yeah, you get good deal. Blow down her parents. Yeah. All right, whoa. You can have uh, a couple beers for only like 10, 15 bucks too. <laughs> talking about bad. Cupid Zero, by the way. Nice. Okay. Uh, even in twenty nineteen, the Berry Indians of the Amazon believe a good mother will have sex with all the best dudes in the tribe, so she can create the best baby by mixing up yeah, all the guys' Yeah, you think you're going to make a good baby with only one dose of sperm? Are you crazy? <laughs> yeah. you, you need to get all the sperm in there. On the opposite side of things, the Ache people, hunter-gatherers in the jungles of Paraguay, they believe that when an old Ache woman becomes a drag, it's proper for a young Ache man to sneak up behind her and boom, kill her on the head with one axe blow. Okay, so... There's lots of crazy ways to be a human. Natural selection yeah. hasn't really decided on one yet, but mostly we have. So here's another uh, way or uh, aspect to our lives, especially in the ancient times, is Early that homonyms. you're not going to be lonely. There, you're always going to have people around. You might not always be with that big group of 150. You might split off occasionally, but chances are you're going to split off with your family, maybe another one or two families. You're going to be surrounded by people all the time. And you worked only a couple hours a day finding food, nothing crazy, but you're still kind of busting your ass out there, digging up tubers. You don't have private property. And that's a big one, Okay. Look at all the shit you have around you. You're driving in your car. You're listening on your headphones. This is yours. This is his. This is mine. This is the company's. This is my dad's. Whatever. (laughs) Everything is yours or mine or his or what. Our ancestors didn't have anything that they owned. You can't carry anything but like a hand axe and maybe a bladder full of water, okay? (laughs) Sometime recently, we got addicted to shit, probably invented bags and tool belts. Think of how cool you would have been if you had a tool belt in your tribe and someone (laughs) else didn't. Like, oh, yeah, I get to carry my rocks on my belt. Look at me. I got all these cool tools in my tool belt, right? Yeah, for sure, yeah. What about food? Well, from this book and some others, it's safe to say that men spent as much time talking about how good they are at hunting as actually hunting. Right? <laughs> and if you yeah. know men, you know that's true. Okay, <laughs> Mostly, we were gathering. We got termites to find, berries to find, those tubers I keep talking about, which probably like potatoes or whatever. Not potatoes in Africa, but... So that means you had to know the environment super well. You all your your brain power is concentrated on understanding the seasons, growth cycles, the way things look when there's a tasty fruit growing there. Always studying and learning new things. Everything in our environment would have been interesting to us. And you were always studying and learning new things from your elders, from your group mates. That's a pretty crazy different way to experience life that we don't dig into as much now, which might be part of the problem with all the depression that we have. Okay, Think of how little we know about plants now. We've replaced we that knowledge of plants with knowledge of Excel and PowerPoint. It's way more boring. Back then, back then we probably didn't have to work that hard either. Uh, scientists think maybe 30 hours a week took care of everything that we needed. So we were hunting, but probably not as much as you know we would like to think because... You know, it seems cool, but chances are it was we were only bringing in big game like, you know, every once in a while or something, but not too often. Let me tell you what. If I was in a tribe and we were hunting, think of what that would be like. 
I bet my tribe would be, we'd be painting our faces. We'd have a little pre-hunt dance. We'd be high-fiving, getting all jacked up. Makes them realize how deep teamwork and athletics are ingrained in our human behavior. Whoever gets the mammoth does the dab. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's right. We're getting, where does all the competition and aggression in our psyches get transferred to these days when war is less imminent? Ever been to a sporting event? Ever been to a college football game? Okay, if you hunted down a mammoth, you better believe you'd be doing some sort of touchdown celebration. Oh, yeah, we got chants, all all sorts of good stuff. Yeah. And so here's another crazy early homonym experience. Imagine how crazy it was for if you're a tribe and you're kind of going along and you come across another tribe and they are keeping fire in their village are you crazy that (laughs) that shit gets out of control and kills everything it touches okay by three hundred thousand years ago our ancestors homo erectus and neanderthals and our, our our early ancestors sapiens they were all having bonfires so that's pretty crazy is that we can actually attach a date to it. Think about that. Pretty recent, I and, believe. And, and think about the first people that had to convince the other tribal elders, like, no, no, you know that shit that gets really hot and, and uh, burns everything it touches? I think we should keep that close and use it. Like, are you <laughs> nuts? <laughs> no, get that shit out of here. But he's like, no, no, it keeps us warm. It helps us survive colder temperatures so we can move further north. It helps us to digest our food. You know, all that raw protein, oh, those enzymes, my, my enzymes are having trouble breaking that down. But I think cooking could kind of be like an external stomach that could operate a more uh, chemical, it, it, chemical, it changes the, the, the chemical nature I'm sure of that's the, what they of were the thinking, Jay. Yeah, I don't know if they're thinking chemical stomach. That's exactly okay. what they were thinking. Yeah, okay. Um, it, it might be interesting to think that our ancestors may have set fire to entire forests to turn them into grasslands and collect all the barbecued animals and nuts. That's an interesting way to think, Taunt. So scientists think that there is a connection between the amount of calories we could gi- digest and the size of our brains. Because our brains, this little two-pound tonka jelly up here, uses 20% of our energy. So... Cooking was the only way that we could cultivate, we could eat enough calories to power these little engines up here, okay? Because if you think about how much chimps have to chew on all those leaves, there's not a lot of calories there. Cooking allowed us to ingest enough calories to get our super social, super gossipy, shared imagination brains online. Mm. Pretty crazy. Pretty so crazy. That was our tour of pre seventy thousand year hominem experiences, and it was dead on. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and just to kind of, we're gonna round this out with a little talk about how big our tribes were for all those millions of years. Remember we how we talked about one hundred fifty people? Yeah. Is it does that na- have a name, Andrew? Is it does, a- JD. It's called Dunbar's number. It's a very famous sociological study by Robin Dunbar, according to Wikipedia. Dunbar's number is the cognitive limit to the number of people that you can maintain stable social relationships with. A.K.A. people you'd invite to your wedding today. Yes. What he said was that you can calculate how big a group size is. Like take capuchin monkeys. Say their brain is so big. 
you can he was able to estimate how big their groups were based on the complexity of their brains like they can only remember so many people and so many personalities and relationships and stuff given how big their brain was so given our brain size we he estimated that we lived in groups of about 150 and that's kind of been borne out in the data that we look at when so <clears throat> data that we look at lost these prehistorical sapiens tribes were held together by one thing stable personal relationships where you know everybody and you know how everybody relates to everybody else and you need a big brain to do that so what can we say about our mental life Unfortunately, not as much as we would like to. So here, here's how we would think about our old religions. We were probably animistic, thinking that spirits interacted with the world. And we're still animistic, so that's a pretty good guess. We definitely had lots of hierarchy because we find that some bodies were buried with thousands of beads and sweet teeth and bones and all sorts of jewelry and stuff. And that's a pretty good clue that that person was a chief and pretty important. Were we more violent? It's tough to say, but it seems so. But everything changed 10,000 years ago. Everything we've been talking about was like, you know, the last few tens of thousands of years. Six million years ago, we were all ape species. 70,000 years ago, we started dominating planet Earth. And that's what we've covered so far. But now, and that was the cognitive revolution. That really when we, we talked about how humans took over the world. Now we've taken over the world. And we're getting into part two. The agricultural revolution. That begins 10,000 years ago. For basically our entire evolutionary history... Our ancestors gathered a bunch of different plants and animals. But now that we've taken over the world, it's getting harder and harder to hunt. The land is full of tribes everywhere. Side note, at the same time, the climate started warming out of the last ice age. Good timing, Mother Earth. Okay? Mm -hmm. And some smart people started noticing something. Hey, mm. you know, there's this tasty grass that keeps growing around this is interesting and it keeps growing year after year in the same places and the longer we stay in this spot collecting this tasty grass the more tasty grass seems to grow and it's even growing on the paths to our home and if we spread this tasty grass out a bit more it's going to grow there too and we can eat the grass and let's call this grass grain. <laughs> <I'm, I'm> <laughs> nice. And you can imagine the first few tribes in Turkey and Iraq discussing it. Well, why don't we just stay here for a while? Maybe we can build our dream house, <laughs> yeah. right? This grass is good. Let's eat it again. Well, It'll be back next summer. We don't need to keep moving everywhere. Yeah. We can just protect this field of grass. And for the first time in our history, yep. we created permanent villages. And that allowed our birth rates to skyrocket. Because, you know how I mentioned the amount of calories we could take in to power our brains? Well, this tasty grass increases our calorie per acre by 300%, okay? If the name of the evolutionary game is turning resources into offspring, okay, that's what evolution does. And we unlocked three times more calories right next to a nest that we could fortify, okay? Evolutionary checkmate. That's okay. right, baby. Boom, we got it. So you've all consistently makes the point here that when you look at it, 
the agricultural revolution, while it allowed us to get more calories per acre, it may have been a net negative for Homo sapiens. That was one of the crazy ideas. As that, individuals, that was it covers a, this quite a bit. Now, instead of roaming our territory, hunting and gathering, we're stuck doing the same repetitive, backbreaking work day after day, year after year. Here's an interesting metaphor. He says it's almost like wheat domesticated us. Mm. So now we're not climbing trees and running around and studying plant growth and stuff. That stuff sounds awesome, okay? <laughs> now we're digging in the ground because wheat doesn't like stones. So we're breaking our backs, moving stones out of the fields. We're crawling around on our hands and knees, pulling out other non-tasty grass kind of plants because wheat doesn't want to compete with that. We build fences, dig irrigation ditches, and even stand guard over the fields. Only Yuval the Meditator would spin it around and show how humans were domesticated by wheat. But he does do that, right? And he even mentions our bodies weren't designed to do this. Studies of ancient skeletons show the transition to farming, bringing about tons of injuries like slip discs, arthritis, and hernias. So do you want more reasons this grass sucks? Because we're hitting you with them, okay? This grain isn't nutritious. There's no vitamins, no minerals, no protein, and no fat. The seed doesn't even want to be digested by us. It wants to grow in the ground. It doesn't want to be in our stomach. The grass didn't give us economic security either. So in our gathering days, if one area goes barren or the disease spreads or one food source fails... You just go find another. You got plenty to choose from. But now we're growing one food source, and that makes it really vulnerable to fungus or locusts or drought. And it doesn't make us any less violent, this grass. Early farmers were at least as violent as hunter-gatherers. If you worked your ass off all year and stockpiled food, well, now you're just a big target, and you can't give it up. The field is everything you have. You'll probably fight to the death. This encouraged us to join into larger and larger groups. Villages to cities to eventually kingdoms in order to protect our piles of grass. All about the piles of grass. That storing these piles of grass led to war. I didn't farm good this year, but you know what? I'm just going to kill that guy and take his grain, cows, whatever. So I'm going to build a fence to protect my pile of grass that I've got here. <laughs> the first defense contracts were set up to protect grain and cows. The Sanskrit word for war literally means a desire for more cows. That's really what it boils down to. Yeah. Now, the more people are alive under the agricultural system, we can't go back. We can't reverse it because the system is necessary to be keeping everyone alive. We, got, we have so many people, you can't go back to hunting and gathering because that doesn't give us enough calories. So the system is worse than what we had before, but it's irreversible. And he says the agricultural trap snapped shut on the homo sapiens nice quote luxuries tend to become necessities and to spawn new obligations quote we thought we were saving time instead we revved up the treadmill of life to 10 times its former speed and made our days more anxious and agitated and he's talking about the agricultural this is revolution. just the agricultural yeah, revolution know, okay right? we haven't gotten to today yeah, yeah if yeah. rice <laughs> is stressful yikes quote everywhere rulers and elites spring up living off the peasants' surpluses and leaving them with only a bare subsistence. These forfeited food surpluses fueled politics, wars, art, and philosophy. They built palaces, forts, monuments, and temples. The extra they produced fed kings, government officials, soldiers, priests, artists, and thinkers. History is something that very few people have been doing while everyone else was plowing fields 
and carrying water buckets. And That's quote, one of the fire quotes of, of all time. History is something that very few people have been doing while everyone else was plowing fields and carrying water buckets. Only wow. a dude that meditates a month a year can yeah. figure that one out. Until yeah. the late modern era, 90% of us were peasants. The little extra bit that you produced fed people who fill our history books. <laughs> 12,000 years ago, there were 5 to 8 million people. Think about that. 5 to 8 spread across all the, the whole world. That's 12,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. 10,000 years later. There's 250 million. Whoa. Big change. 50x. That should happen fast. By 7,000 BC, the biggest city on Earth was in Turkey and had five to 10,000 individuals. But at its height, Rome had 100 million subjects. Damn. Think about how big that team group thing got over the past few thousand years. How? These shared stories, that shared imagination that we focused on, hopped up on farming, that creates this exponential growth that we're talking about. Our human groups used to top out at about 150, and now, a few thousand years ago, we were taxing 100 million people at a time. How do we get these huge groups working together, Jay? Quote, when the agricultural revolution opened opportunities for the creation of crowded cities and mighty empires, people invented stories about great gods, motherlands, and joint stock companies to provide the needed social links. While human, re uh, how, while human evolution was crawling at its usual snail's pace, the human imagination was building astounding networks of mass cooperation unlike any other ever seen on Earth. So how do we get, how do we say that we got past that 150 person barrier? Collective imagination. These empires said, we're all Romans. The Roman Empire was an imagined order, a collectively imagined order. Quote, the social norms that sustained them were based neither on ingrained instincts, nor on a personal acquaintance, nor on a on personal acquaintances, but rather on a belief in shared myths, end quote. So we're going to take a look at two of the best-known imagined order myths in history. Oh, this is fantastic shit right here. Okay? Both yeah. made so much better because they were both in 1776. Mm. But first, we're going to talk about 1776 BC with your boy Hammurabi and his code. Okay? Hammurabi. Relating it to the United States Declaration of Independence published in 76 AD. So. Each served as a cooperation manual for Babylonians and Americans, respectively. Literally, an eye for an eye and a broken bone for a broken bone. That was how the Code of Hammurabi worked. If you kill a high-status woman, your daughter gets killed. But if you kill a slave woman, just toss the guy a few shekels. <laughs> <laughs> and where did Hammurabi derive the power to enforce his code? Quote, Hammurabi's code asserts that Babylonian social order is rooted in universal and eternal principles of justice dictated by the gods. Doesn't that sound like our God-given rights? So sure does. Ha Hammurabi <laughs> did it first. Different God, same idea. Quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Babylonians think people are unequal. Americans... With a few added amendments, we write <laughs> Very add, important amendments. Think people are inherently equal. Now here, Harari makes a very interesting point. Quote, in fact, they are both wrong. Hammurabi and the American founding fathers alike imagined a reality governed by universal and immutable principles of justice. 
Yet the only place where such universal principles exist is in the fertile imagination of sapiens and in the myths they invent and tell one another. These principles have no objective validity. There's that shared imagination idea. These things don't exist except in our brains. Quote, we believe in a particular order, not because it is objectively true, but because believing in it enables us to cooperate effectively and forge a better society. Groups got big because we all started telling the same stories. But the bigger the group, the harder it is to keep the story straight. Right? For example, how are you supposed to keep all those 100 million Romans telling the same stories? More importantly, how are you going to track taxes on all those Romans? So our human <laughs> technology upgraded, and we're going to head back to the historical timeline. Enter Sumeria. Okay? Mm. Our brains Good stuff from Sumeria. are designed to hold information about tubers, about individuals, about you know uh, who's doing that and who, who's going off hunting where. But we can't store all the, imag- the information for running these huge imagined orders like Christianity or capitalism or democracy. So that's why we're going to go back to this major technological update in Sumeria, which is southern Iraq, 5,000 years ago. Let's paint a picture, okay? It's sunny, it's grassy, it's the dawn of the first world civilization. The ancient Sumerian towns got so big that they couldn't track all the information needed to tack their citizens. So, quote, some unknown Sumerian geniuses invented a system for storing and processing information outside of their brains. This data processing system is called... Writing. Writing. Writing allowed more knowledge to transfer from generation to generation. Now we can listen to and obey the rules of people we'd never met. Writing lengthening lengthened our societal memories and crystallized the best stories, orders, and scripts. But writing was able to transfer scripts in a less in a more lossless manner. So you have a more accurate spread of this information. So before we've been talking about this information in our only existing in our heads, and now it exists in squiggly lines on paper that you can pass around and, and have accurate copies of. So how did we create these mass cooperation networks taxing all these thousands and thousands of people against our biological coding because we're not really evolved to live in these big groups? Give the tribal stories a bunch of time, space, and written language, and the stories start to battle for a mind share of humanity. And the best stories take all. The best stories take all by getting coded in specific scripts. Hammurabi's Code, the Ten Commandments, the Magna Carta, all were attempts to imagine a new order and devise new behavioral scripts for people to follow. We're using a coding term here. Scripts are often called rules, laws, beliefs, customs, rituals, etc. What we mean by the best stories is like these this information is what allowed were the, were the best ways that our groups could get big and organized and effective at cooperating and that is what ended up spreading. Quote, myths and fictions accustomed people to think in certain ways, to behave in accordance with certain standards, to want certain things and to observe certain rules. They thereby created artificial instincts that enabled millions of strangers to cooperate effectively. This network of artificial instincts is called culture, and writing catalyzed culture. The direction of history is for small, simple cultures to gradually coalesce into bigger and more complex civilizations. The Mongol Empire dominated huge swaths of Asia and even Europe. 
Christianity converted billions of people. The Latin language spread throughout Europe. These things sometimes broke up a bit, but, quote, these breakups are temporary reversals in an inexorable trend towards unity. Very quote. inexorable. And it sounds like Shantaram, by the way. Yeah, the, best, the best way mm. to see this trend is to think about the number of separate little human worlds that used to exist, okay? 10,000 years ago, we were in thousands of isolated little bands roaming or farming different parts of the world. We we talked about we, there's only like five to eight million people, but you're spread across all the continents. Think about how many separate little worlds existed, little languages and stuff. There's no connection between these tribes. But 2000 BC, only a couple thousand years later, there were a few yeah. hundred city-states and empires. Crazy. And now... We are basically living in one intercollected world unless you live in North Korea. <laughs> we got a geopolitical system where our planet one is divided system. into internationally recognized states. We've got basically one economic system, capitalism. capitalism. We have one legal system recognizing human rights and international law, blah, blah, blah. For the most and, part. And scien- the same scientific system. So we all believe in order, rule, and law. Not because it's objectively true, but because it enables mass cooperation now on a global scale. Mass cooperation wins. Mass teamwork wins. The best team wins. So Let's go team! <laughs> Homo sapiens mass cooperation strategy breakdown here. According to Yuval, there were three universal mass cooperation forces that started by three different types of people whose jobs never existed before, okay? So listen to these three people and think how each job that they created was so unique in the history of... It connected us together, right? Yeah. Merchants, conquerors, and prophets. These people can only exist in a more connected world than that of 10,000 years ago. They created three categories of shared stories that combined to shape a global sapiens network by rapidly scaling homo sapiens cooperation. The, think uh, So these three things right here, these are the three mass cooperation forces, forces that just sucked us all into bigger United and united us into more connected world. groups. Money, empire, religion. Merchants, conquerors, prophets. And this kind of makes sense. When you ask yourself, what teams, what groups are more most important to you? Your company, where you make money, is probably one. Your country that survives you and protects you, it's probably another one. And your religion. Those are three important groups that unite people together. So we're going to break each one down, starting with money. What the mass cooperation it? forces. Number one, money. Well, money is anything that people are willing to use in order to represent the value of other things for the purpose of exchanging goods and services. An economy of favors and obligations doesn't work when large numbers of strangers try to cooperate. How many onions is this goat worth? (laughs) Money enables better mass cooperation, better mass teamwork. The real insight here is that money wasn't an object. It is an intersubjective reality that exists in our shared imagination. I'm sure that argument worked. Not a thing. Yeah, that's what they were. That's what the bankers back then were saying. Money is not a thing. It's a belief in a value of a thing. Quote, trust is the raw material of money. Money works not because it's valuable to you inherently, but because you can reliably trust that everyone else wants it and will take it from you. Trust. It's all about trust. Different examples of primitive money. A long time ago, cavemen were using seashells as money. Gold ingots as money. Cattle, skins, salt, grain, beads, cloth. 
cigarettes. People okay. who don't believe in the same God are perfectly fine using the same type of money. And here's another classic Yuvalism. He points out that Osama bin Laden hated America but loved American dollars. <laughs> That's a crazy way to think about Today, it. Today, just to give you guys a sense, there are 60 trillion total dollars in the world. That's how much dollars is out there. But... Only six trillion is actually on paper. That's one tenth of the whole world that actually exists in an object. The rest is digital. And by the way, you think Bitcoin's going to be a big deal? So, Maybe. all you accountants out there, Maybe. shout out mom and dad, take pride because the first written document in human history was Ugh. a receipt for grass. <laughs> the first written document is an expense report. Okay. I can't believe that. That's so crazy. <laughs> Where religion asks us to believe in something, money asks us to believe that other people believe in something. Money is the most universal and efficient system of mutual trust ever devised and it is a great mass cooperation force for humanity so that was number one number two we're moving on to empire almost everybody in the 21st century descends from an empire because in the last 10,000 years those hundreds of thousands of separate little cultures and worlds coalesced into a handful of massive empires when you take those pre-agricultural tribes and you give them a lot more food and a lot more people and their stories and myths could grow and animate entire empires. Story of empires is simple but effective. Our team conquers shit, adds more people to our team, and conquers more shit. If your team doesn't do that, your team about to get conquered. Okay. Okay. That's, that's yeah. empire. Here are some examples. We got Assyrian Empire, Babylonian Empire, Ottoman Empire, Muslim Caliphates, Roman Empire, Chinese Dynasties, Genghis Khan and his little private old thing. Mongol Empire. British Empire. All these empires had uniting stories, standardized money, and they were really, really good at conquering shit. And all this only started a few million years ago. A few thousand years ago, excuse me. Stories of empires and their conquests are what fill our history books. The money-enabled trade that united the world and empire-enabled tribes to be swallowed up into larger and larger groups. Now that we've covered those two hot topics, let's cool things down with a breezy, non-controversial talk on the topic of religion, Yuval's third mass cooperation what, force. What the hell is religion? Quote, a system of human norms and values that is founded on a belief in a superhuman order. And why is religion so effective at uniting people, Jay? Quote, religions assert that our laws are ordained by an absolute and supreme authority. Much of ancient mythology is, in fact, a legal contract in which humans promise everlasting devotion to gods in exchange for mastery over plants and animals which the first chapters of the book of Genesis are a prime example. Hey, God, can you help us grow this grass? We'll do whatever you want. Hour a week? Okay, we, we can do that. <laughs> we can do that, yeah. Neil if you help Stan, us grow the grass, yeah. Where, we can do a dance too for some rain if you want. <laughs> but for most of history, religions were exclusive and local. They didn't grow or unite anyone outside the immediate tribe. Hey, you can't join. This is our religion. This yeah. is just for us, right? But it all changed. A few religions, you probably heard of these, have embodied universal and missionary principles and united the world like few other forces. 
First of all, Christianity. Mm -hmm. That's a major basis of Christianity is that you better go out and make other people Christian too. That's that missionary impulse. And it's universal in the sense that you actually believe that everyone on the world should be Christian. That was really new in religion. Usually it was like, no, we're the lions. Like, you can't be the lion tribe too. But now everybody should be Christian, and your job as a Christian should be to convert more Christians. Some of the most consequential script writing ever occurred at 325 A.D., the Council of Nicaea. These are when they decided the books that go in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're in. Thomas, Judas, Billy Joe, they're out, right? (laughs) That's when they've literally voted on what gets in the Bible and what gets out. Here's an interesting way of how they made uh, Christianity universal and missionary, because when you come to Ireland— They've got a whole bunch of other deities that they like, and they got some girl named Bridget that Before they worship. Before Christianity got there, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, don't worry. If you're, if you're a priest, you're like, yeah, we got Bridget. We, we, can, we can put her in here. She, <laughs> she can be Christian, too. How about a saint? Okay, perfect. She's a saint. Now <laughs> Ireland's patron saint is St. Bridget. That's a good way to kind of enter that world. You can, can kind of soak up the religions by yeah. still keeping your religion some, the main one. Sometimes those universal and missionary impulses get a little bit out of hand. So here's some Yuval slam poetry. Hit them so with this good. quote. Quote, on 23 August 1572, French Catholics who stressed the importance of good deeds attacked communities of French Protestants who highlighted God's love for humankind. In this attack, called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, between five and 10,000 Protestants were slaughtered in less than 24 hours. When the Pope in Rome heard the news from France, he was so overcome by joy that he organized festive prayers to celebrate the occasion and commissioned a fresco of the massacre which is currently off-limits to Vatican visitors. <laughs> I'd, okay? I'd, I'd gander that friend. Yeah, that me would be too. Good. Okay? That is so nuts. Mm, Islam crazy. is another universal and missionary religion because they believe everyone on the world should be Muslim, and as a job, it's their, it, it, it's their job as a Muslim to tell us about it. So the same way everybody today is descended from an empire, almost everybody today only comes from a handful of religious backgrounds. Think how different that is than what it used to be. 10,000 years ago, we probably had hundreds and thousands of deities and religions. And today, there's like a 90% chance you're a Muslim, Christian, Buddhist, or a Hindu. That's it. That's it. Universal and missionary religions have been swallowing up other religions for thousands of years. And those are the three mass cooperation forces that Yuval talks about a lot and that are super mind-blowing. So those are the jobs that never existed before. Merchants, conquerors, and prophets. Using money, empire, and religion to unite the entire globe. So far... We've covered the history of our human societies from apes in the jungle to 100 million taxed Romans. That's a pretty big jump. And Let's do a quick review here, Jay. Yeah. Come on. Cognitive revolution beginning 6 million years ago, but really about 70,000 years ago when our, after our brains had already exploded in size and complexity and we were able to use our special sauce, teamwork, teamwork. because team. of that other special sauce, shared imagination. And mm-hmm. from that, We dominated planet Earth over the last 70,000 years. Agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago, we began farming and making receipts for tasty grass. (laughs) Very important. (laughs) Got to have both those things. (laughs) That's where the three uniting forces acted on our farmer ancestors to unite them. And the merchants, conquerors, and prophets came up with money, empire, and religion. And those cooperation networks have been growing exponentially for the last 10,000 years. But... 
something really weird happened just 500 years ago in about 1500 AD. And here's a really interesting mind trick that uh, Yuval plays on us to get us to think about how different things were from 1,000 years ago to 500 years ago. So here's a quote. Quote, Or say a Spanish peasant to have fallen asleep in AD 1000 and woken up 500 years later to the din of Columbus's sailors boarding their ships. The world would have seemed to him quite familiar. But had one of Columbus's sailors fallen asleep and woken up to the ringtone of a 21st century iPhone, he would have found himself in a world strange beyond comprehension. So what the what hell happened? Happened. We're going to get into part three, the scientific revolution starting 500 years ago, 1500 AD. So for most of history, not much changed. And then in the last 500 years, the tiniest little sliver of history, everything changed. In the last 25 generations, our human population has increased 14x, but our human production has increased 240x, okay? What happened? Science, okay? Until the scientific revolution, most human cultures did not believe in progress. When does shit get better? You could be farming, not trying to think of things. The farm outputs the same number of crops every year, no matter what. You can't really change it. So the typical pre-modern ruler invested in shit that would make him seem awesome he did not invest in shit that would grow his kingdom's economy or to make life better for his citizens <laughs> what could you improve right that's Nothing hilarious gets better yeah. yeah so i better make myself look dope example primo numero uno is those egyptian pharaohs and their pyramids right that doesn't help the economy that just makes that them look sweet okay during those times Every religion claimed that everything that could be known already was known. Which makes sense, because how convincing would you be if it was like, well, I don't know, her religion doesn't know the answer to that. So good religion. Yuval says that the great discovery about 500 years ago was ignorance. ignorance. And that's another one of his crazy ways to yeah. think about something. Yeah. There were actually a lot of things that we didn't know. And investing in scientific research could teach you those things and give you powers. That's the main key, is that when you learn something, you can have a power that nobody else has, and nobody said it better than Francis Bacon in one of the all-time quotes, knowledge is power. Because Francis Bacon didn't just think of science as knowing something or knowing the truth, but actually giving us new powers to do new things. And he probably was in a pitch meeting with the Duke trying to get some funding. And so what what are you going to say? Like, oh, we can figure things out or... Knowledge. I, my knowledge will give you power, you power, Mr. Duke. Okay, yeah, yeah, for sure. That'll get you some investment. <laughs> yeah, it will. Now, quote, poverty, sickness, wars, famines, old age, and death. It's death itself. We're not the inevitable fate of humankind. They were simply the fruits of our ignorance. Science. If you invest in science, your empire will grow. So where did the scientific revolution begin? Western Europe. And why? That's the bigger question. Why was it in Western Europe? So one partial answer that comes from a book, Why Nations Fail. So here was a really interesting idea, is that after the Black Death in the 1300s, half, like, no, maybe 40% of people died. And Western Europe kind of dealt with it a, a different way. They got rid of serfdom and created a more equal society with more benefits to all the members because there weren't enough people, so your labor wages went up. 
So that kind of wow. that created a society where more people had had say in the government. And then here's another reason for Western Europe, a culture that increasingly emphasized individualism in that think for yourself kind of attitude might have had something to do with it, a.k.a. enlightenment. Yep. Another reason for Western European dominance, Max Weber credits the Protestant work ethic. Um, JD and I were discussing this, and we're pretty sure that Gutenberg's printing press didn't hurt much either, okay? <laughs> uh, by signing the Treaty of Westphalia, European countries agreed to a balance of powers, which created a bit of a keeping up with the Joneses effect on the whole continent. All the countries had to keep up with each guns, other. got good guns, you better get good guns. That's right. Because of this perpetual arms race, Europe was the first to invest in scientific research in order to discover new superpowers like firearms, cannons, and boat technology. And it's a very guns, germs, and steel kind of answer, which we're going to do. But China was so big and so uncontested in its power that it didn't have any other Joneses to keep up with. Like, they invented gunpowder and they're like why would we use this nobody's even close yeah so they we're the middle kingdom we yeah, don't care yeah. right so you know all the big players from the scientific revolution you got your boys galileo astronomical peeping tom you got isaac newton the apple lover you got Rene descartes i think therefore i am you got copernicus no seriously guys earth ain't in the center <laughs> burn him okay uh Telescopes, gravity, solar system, all of this stuff happened during the scientific revolution. An important name that you may not have heard before is the name Henry Oldenburg. He was the first guy to get every scientist to publish their work openly. So its scientific revolution is not only the focus on science, but the focus on open science. Now we can build on each other's research. That was a good business move, too, by the way. Good good job, Henry Oldenburg. It's not truth for truth's sake. Because that doesn't get your shit funded, okay? Knowledge ain't useful, and you're not going to get funded if it's just knowledge. People pay for power, not knowledge. So Yuval has us think about this. Think about which cow study is going to get funded. If you're going to run a study to ask how happy cows are in the rain, how they feel about rain, (laughs) or how do you increase milk production, which one's going to be more useful, which one's going to get research, okay? I think we're going to know. Scientific research is expensive, and you got to ask who's going to pay and why. And here's a really interesting historical story that kind of outlines this this weird dilemma between knowledge and power. In 1768, a bunch of scientists left England to explore the South Pacific and measure the distance to the Earth to the sun. How did they do that? They needed to measure the exact angle of the sun from wildly different spots on Earth and then use some trigonometry to figure it out. It's totally Sweet crazy. Sweet measurement, And by they the actually way. were yeah. pretty, pretty on. That's incredible. The expedition was captained by James Cook, and the ship and the crew were provided by the Royal Navy. And oops, they discovered a massive continent called Australia and said, this huge island belongs to our tiny island now. Yeah. So here's the question. Was Cook's ship a scientific expedition protected by a military force, or was it a military expedition with a few scientists tagging along? The interesting idea here is that the scientific revolution and modern imperialism were inseparable. So who paid for all this scientific research? European imperialist governments. Government is science's sugar daddy. <laughs> it's not our words. It's Yuval's words. Yeah, it's great word. Again, he's crushing it. Science was like roids for empires. That was our words. <laughs> they explored mostly to take new land, but also to create new knowledge. Back then, Asia owned 80% of global wealth. 80%. So it's Europe not like they sucked. didn't have the resources to go and explore the world. They just didn't care. 
Yeah, I mentioned this a second ago, but China literally means middle kingdom. If you are already the center of the world, there's no need to go explore. Why would we go explore? The middle kingdom's here, right? But the mastery of the Americas and the wealth created with it led the Europeans to conquering the Ottomans, the Persians, the Indians, and the Chinese. And when everybody finally woke up to the name of the game, science, science and imperialism, it was too late and Europe was in charge. So, we have a sense for how and why these imperial powers funded the scientific revolution. But where did all this new wealth come from? They the wealth that they invested they in the science. They just didn't dig new gold out of the ground. They built a system which allowed wealth to fund growth by creating new technology. Chapter 16. We've missed a few, but we'll, we'll hit some. Capitalist creed. For most of history, the local economy has stayed the same. We mentioned this. There wasn't a belief in that the future will be better. Farms produced the same crops each year. Nobody was inventing any sweet new vertical farming techniques, that's for sure. So why would you ever invest your money in new technology, new science? The pie doesn't grow. Quote, to understand modern economic history, you really need to understand just a single word, growth, end quote. For the economy to start growing, people needed to trust that the future was going to be better than the present. Otherwise, you wouldn't make an investment in the future. So that trust in the future comes from science. Because the reason the economy has exploded continuously for hundreds of years now is because we continuously come up with new technological gadgets, like the internal combustion engines or railroads or CRISPR. We're still going. Gene editing. By enabling new powers, science has enabled trust in the future, the key ingredient in a growing economy. I know, remember how we said money, the raw material of money is trust? Well, science creates trust in the future. Yes, the new law of capitalism is growth. A pharaoh who pours resources into a pyramid is not a capitalist. But a scientist who pours resources inventing a light bulb is a capitalist. So we're bringing it back to one of our favorite years, 1776 Good year. AD, this why, where Jaboy, <laughs> I love that we said Jaboy Adam Smith, he published The Wealth of Nations and he blew society's brains <laughs> sure out. sure did. Because yeah. back then everything was zero sum, like we've been talking. Pie doesn't grow. If you get more of the pie, they get less. But Smith changed that by saying, quote, an increase in the profits of private entrepreneurs is the basis for the increase in collective wealth and prosperity. Yuval says Smith's idea is, quote, one of the most revolutionary ideas in human history, end quote. And he, Yuval boils Smith's ideas down to this. Greed is good. By coming richer, I benefit everyone, not just myself. Egoism is altruism. Adam Smith says the pie will grow if everyone tries to do what's best for themselves. And everyone is already out for themselves. But this is okay because economic growth is win-win. Grow your slice and grow the pie at the same time. Big pie, more pie. Love the pie, eat the pie, grow the pie, right? So here's a great trust in the future example. So Spain's investment in Columbus's crazy idea to take a bunch of ships and sail off to nowhere. So Columbus had the science to believe the earth was round. And he convinced King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella to use their funds to create, help Columbus create new powers with their new shipping routes. So that was one of the boldest Series A funding pitches of all time. Series USA funding, okay, I might say. <laughs> Columbus convinced the Spanish royalty that giving him a little money now would give them a lot of money later. And Spain won 
big. Yeah, they they had land, tobacco, sugar, bounty, and they started kicking all their neighbors' asses because before long, every country in Western Europe was on a capitalist-funded imperial-slash-scientific expedition bender. That's right. <laughs> Europe wording. was shipping greedy-ass conquistadores all over the world. The secret to all these new scientific and geographic discoveries was a new concept created from trust in the future, the concept of credit. Humans, quote, agreed to represent imaginary future goods with a special kind of money called credit, end quote. New quote, credit enables us to build the present at the expense of the future. Quote, key thing, your credit is only good if you pay your debts back. Here's a little story on the power of this new invention called credit. In the early 1500s, the Dutch state was the backwoods of the Spanish Empire. Spain had all the money and all the power. But in the early 1600s, the Dutch won independence from Spain, replacing the Spaniards as master of the ocean highways. They built a global Dutch empire and became the richest state in Europe. How did they do it? Well, it had to do with credit. Spain was like, whatever, I'm the king. I want to pay you back. Look at my empire. What you going to do, bro? I don't need to pay you. But the European creditors started noticing the Spanish king declining credit rating and stopped funding his expeditions. The Dutch could finance their expeditions better than the Spanish, but they, they had secured the trust of the burgeoning European financial system. You ever heard of the Dutch East India Company? There it is right there. You've all, quote, capital trickles away from dictatorial states that fail to defend private individuals and their property. Instead, it flows into states upholding the rule of law and private property. So, end quote. capitalism enabled growth, but as any cancer researcher could tell you, that growth has negative side effects sometimes. So here's a dark side of capitalism yes. that colonial businessmen imported about 10 million human beings from Africa and forced them to grow sugarcane and tobacco and dig in mines for free so that Europeans back home could enjoy sweet tea and sugar barons could enjoy huge profits. This wasn't state-controlled. It was purely economic enterprise. Private slave trading companies sold shares in the Amsterdam, London, and Paris stock exchanges. Imagine telling someone, hey, you should invest in this slave trading stock. It's really good. <laughs> Middle-class Europeans looking for a good investment bought these shares. Here's some more Yuval yeah. Slam poetry. Mm. Quote, when growth becomes a supreme good, unrestricted by any other ethical considerations, it can easily lead to catastrophe. Some religions, such as Christianity and Nazism, have killed millions out of burning hatred. Capitalism has killed millions out of cold indifference coupled with greed. Like pretty much whoa. every complicated topic. Yeah, whoa, by the way, whoa. Capitalism, wait, let's say that again. Some religions, such as Christianity and Nazism, have killed millions out of burning hatred. Capitalism has killed millions out of cold indifference coupled with greed. Not even talking about the billions of animals. He, Yuval goes into factory farming and stuff, which didn't exactly fit the outline, but that's not a good thing either. But like pretty much everything else, capitalism has positive and negative. So for starters, basically everyone currently living above the poverty line, which is like billions and billions of people, well, you can thank capitalism for that. It has probably created a world that nobody but a capitalist is capable of running. Quote, the only other way we've tried it, communism, was, quote, so much worse in almost every conceivable way that nobody has had the stomach to try it again. So quote. some say we just need a little more patience. Just keep reinvesting debt capital into the pie and that will get big enough for everyone. But how will that happen? 
We're taking it to the last revolution that we were talking about in this book. We've gone cognitive. We've done agricultural. We've done scientific. And now we're on to industrial. Chapter 17, The Wheels of Industry. Science and capitalism working hand in hand. The modern economy grows thanks to trust in the future and the willingness of capitalists to reinvest their profits in increased production. But that's not enough. Every bit of work ever done in our history was done by muscle power fueled by solar power. Think about that. If you're digging something, you got to use your muscles to dig it. If you want to move a rock, you got to use a muscle to move it. Maybe it's an animal's, but still, it's not that efficient. It all comes down to powered by grass, okay? Basically, everything's been powered by grass, and that sucks. Everyone was fueled by solar energy, captured and packaged in wheat, rice, and potatoes. And even when cooking these farm-grown potatoes... Homo sapiens were, quote, staring in the face the most important invention in the history of energy production and failed to notice it. Nobody saw the potential of that jumping tea kettle lit. What a bunch of idiots, okay? (laughs) If that steam can push a tea kettle, it can push a piston, too. Boom. Steam engine. Steam engine. Not that hard. (laughs) Steam power was the first time in history we didn't need to use animal power to get stuff done. You've all probably wrote this after a 30-day meditation retreat because it's such a crazy quote. Two centuries ago, electricity played no role in the economy, but a series of inventions turned it into our universal genie in a lamp. We flick our fingers and it prints books, sews clothes, keeps our veggies fresh and our ice cream frozen. It cooks our dinners and executes our criminals. It registers our thoughts and records our smiles, lights up our nights, and entertains us with countless television shows. Few of us understand how electricity does all these things, but even fewer can imagine life without it. Damn you all. Chill yeah. out, bro. You're so good. <laughs> Who teams up cooking dinners and executing criminals? In the same <laughs> no. Only you've all. So we've made it all the way from six million years ago, ape ancestors to the present day. In the last section of this book, you've all asks, is this current world really what we want? Think about that ape from six million years ago. Those, those two sisters, the one that was the ancestor of bo- chimps and bonobos and the one that was ancestors of us. Would she be happy? With the way things have gone, should we want this current world that we've built? That's the whole end of this book, which is even crazier. Yeah. Because you think it's about human human history, but he takes it way into the future and like, what, you know, human future? This industrial mechanization led to, quote, the most momentous social revolution that ever befell humankind, the collapse of the family and the local community and their replacement by the state and the market. End quote. Here's the crazy thing is that back then, if you got sick or you wanted to build a house, you went to your family and your neighbors and you asked them for help and they helped you. And then you helped them when they were sick or they wanted to build a house. But now you go to someone you've never met before. Isn't that kind of weird? Yes, it is really weird. If you're sick, you go to some random person in some office that you've never been to, right? Before the Industrial Revolution, you spent basically all of your time with your family or neighbors. Your family was probably, they served as your employer, your farm, the workshop. Your family was also, quote, the welfare system, the health system, the education system, the construction industry, the trade union, the pension fund, the insurance company, the radio, the television, the newspapers, the bank, and even the police. All of those roles were taken up by your family. Now, the state and the market have replaced 
every single one of those roles. Think we called those systems. That was that's somebody else doing that. That what your family and your neighbors used to do. The state and the market they'll tell you this: marry whomever you desire without asking permission from your parents. Take up whatever job suits you, even if community elders disapprove. Live wherever you wish, even if you cannot make it every week to family dinner. You are no longer dependent on your family or your community. We, the state and the market, will take care of you instead. We will provide you food, shelter, education, health, welfare, and employment and protection. He makes it sound very 1984-ish. It does. This stuff comes at a cost. And here, Yuval offers a really great critique on what's going on right now. Quote, Previously, bride and groom met in the family living room, and money passed from the hands of one father to another. Today, courting is done at bars and cafes, and money passes from the hands of lovers to waitresses. (laughs) Yep, in our case, happy hours. Even more money is transferred to the bank accounts of fashion designers, gym managers, dietitians, cosmeticians, and plastic surgeons who help us arrive at the cafe looking as similar as possible to the market's ideal of beauty. (laughs) The state and the market also supply our tribal bonds. For millions of years, we were members of small, intimate communities. But over the last 200 years, these small world communities withered and imagined communities filled the emotional vacuum. We are members of nation states, political parties, and consumer tribes. Think about this. 300 million people today can say we are members of the United States, okay? That couldn't happen before. Now we got Democrats and Republicans. We got Jeep owners doing their weird Jeep wave to each other. And we even have insane clown posse juggalos painting their faces and and spraying (laughs) Fago everywhere. Quote, consumerism and nationalism work extra hours to make us imagine that millions of strangers belong to the same community as ourselves. That we all have a common past, common interests, and a common future. This isn't a lie, it's imagination. Nations and consumer tribes are intersubjective realities. They exist only in our collective imagination. Honestly, that's probably the thing we've been saying most in this collective entire Collective imagination. Book. Collective imagination. We're all making this stuff up. Quote, as long as millions of Germans believe in the existence of a German nation, retell German national myths, and are willing to sacrifice money, time, and limbs for the German nation... Germany will remain one of the strongest powers in the world. Your loyalty lies where your needs are met. Used to be family and community, now it's states and markets. We can't even fathom how quickly everything is changing. But it's a few 10,000 years. Yeah, but is this all bad, all these changes? In 2002, 740,000 people died of human violence. Not bad, not bad. Violence (laughs) is down. Violence is down today, that's for sure. But 870,000. 870,000. They killed themselves, okay? That's not a good thing. Thanks, state and market. Yeah. Whoa. That brings us to chapter 18, and they lived happily ever after. Over the last six million years, our ancestors have witnessed a breathtaking series of revolutions. The earth has been united into a single ecological and historical fear that was the cognitive to the agricultural revolution the economy has grown exponentially and humankind today enjoys the kind of wealth that used to be the stuff of fairy tales science and the industrial revolution have given humankind superhuman powers and practically limitless energy that was the scientific to industrial revolution the social order has been completely transformed 2008, by the way, marks the first time in history that more people lived in cities than not in cities. That's a big marker. 2008, more people in cities than outside of cities. First time ever. It's history a crazy kind of recent, but it's even crazy that it happens. You've all asked a very important question to kind of tie off this whole book. 
okay, all that stuff happened, but are we happier? Quote, was the late Neil Armstrong, whose footprint remains intact on the windless moon, happier than the nameless hunter-gatherer who 30,000 years ago left her handprint on a wall in Chauvet Cave? If not, what was the point of developing agriculture, cities, writing, coinage, empire, science, and industry? Humans seldom ask such questions, but these are the most important questions one can ask of history. Quote, if economic growth and self-reliance do not make people happier, what's the benefit of capitalism? How do you measure happiness? End how quote. crazy is it that he's even asking these questions? And I yeah. love how specific he is. Neil Armstrong on Windless Moon, her hand on this cave. That It's such a great, you know, both people are the same and they might be equally happy. There's not all that much difference between the two of them. How do you measure happiness? Because here's the bottom line, is that your family and your community has way more impact on yep. your happiness than money and health. So we're going to repeat this. Family and community over health and wealth. That means your relationships are more important than basically everything else in your, your world. Your brain doesn't care if it's living in a poop hut or a <laughs> penthouse, okay? Because let me tell you, people live in both, and they can be just about as... You can be a lot happier in a poop hut than a penthouse. Yes, you so can. You get a raise, and it feels great. Woo, got a raise. Two weeks later, it's normal, and you don't notice it anymore, okay? That's facts. Happiness consists in seeing, seeing one's life in its entirety as meaningful and worthwhile. Quote from Mitya... Quote, if you have a why to live, you can bear almost any how. So we're going to bring it to the end of Homer Sapiens. And that's chapter 20. Chapter 20. Here he talks about bionic life, bionic limbs, genetic programming, and the AI singularity. His biggest concern for the future <laughs> is that, quote, fundamental transformations in human consciousness and identity. Whoa. But he wrote a whole new book on that. That was called Homo Deus. It's really good. A quick summary is that the scientific revolution may be the most important biological revolution since the origin of life. Whoa. And he also says here, quote, our inheritors will be godlike. So that Whoa. book was really good. Highly recommended. But here's the afterword. Of the sapiens. animal that became a god. 70,000 years ago, Homo sapiens were homo tenders for saber-toothed tigers. That was our words. Since then, we have spread to every continent, we have ravaged every ecosystem, and we have taken firm control over planet Earth in the first time in Earth's history. Does one species dominate like this? Quote, Today, Homo sapiens stand on the verge of becoming a god, poised to acquire not only eternal youth, but also the divine abilities of creation and destruction. Quote, we advanced from canoes to galleys to steamships to space shuttles, but nobody knows where we're going. E.O. Wilson summarizes the whole story when he says this, quote, the real problem of humanity is the following. We have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. Love that quote. Mm. Think about that. Our emotions are from the Stone Age way back a million years ago. Yep. Our institutions are medieval. You know, we talked about the how Western money, Europe empire, religion, science yep. because of the Black Death in the 1300s. Yep. And then our godlike technology that gives us crazy superpowers. So he ends the entire book with this sentence that's a real mind bender quote. Is there anything more dangerous than dissatisfied and irresponsible gods who don't know what they want? Boom. 
fucking evolve. Okay. That is the book Sapiens. You think it's a history book, and then it turns into a crazy philosophical, philosophical book. like, is this what we want? So, and a note for all of our listeners, if you made it this far, first of all, thank you, and we're honored that you want you enjoyed listening. We tried to record this podcast as though Yuval was directly over our shoulders watching to make sure that we told his story right. We watching and laughing. Yeah, <laughs> and laughing a little bit. We tried to make him laugh a little bit at the same time. We probably slipped up, but hopefully not too much. We really tried to stick true to what he was saying in the book. Basically, we try, we strive for scientific accuracy and a good story. So overall, this podcast is about this book, Homo Sa- or Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, and how much we loved it. So the book is significantly better than our podcast. Go buy the book. Go buy the book. Go read all his books. And we really hope you enjoyed it. That concludes Brother Books Taking on Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Thank you